Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. In this episode, we will cover chapter 7, verses 13 through 28. Uh, This is a section that concludes the unit that began in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has given drastic ethical instruction, uh, mainly in two areas, our responsibilities towards one another and our responsibilities toward God. In both of these areas, Jesus calls his disciples to be perfect or complete, that is to say, non-hypocritical. And his emphasis certainly includes doing, but in such a way that it stems from our heart. Now, this sort of from-the-heart righteousness is, contrary to much popular opinion, a lot harder than mere external conformity. In other words, it's one thing to say God expects us to give, say, 10% of our income. It's another thing, a much harder thing, to say that God demands that we serve him instead of money, and give in such a way that reflects our complete dependence upon God for our daily needs. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, simply put, it's a challenge. So in this concluding section, the Lord Jesus anticipates some possible objections to such a hard sermon. In fact, we can go even farther than that. It's more than possible objections. Jesus knows the inadequate responses many will have and seeks to warn them of the dangers of failing to carry out his prescribed ethical instructions. The alternatives are put in really stark contrasts. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount portrayed Jesus like a new Moses, standing on the mountain and giving the law. And here, like Moses in Deuteronomy, he challenges the people with one of two options. Now, in the end of Deuteronomy, Moses tells half the people to stand on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerizim. It's a powerful visual that they must choose between obedience or disobedience, blessing or cursing. And this dichotomy is a theme that will permeate this section that we have here at the end of Matthew 7. And yet, even though this is a repeated theme, there's a logical progression to these warnings. So keep your eye out for how each warning builds on the previous one as I read the text, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is a powerful section, and in fact, I can hardly think of how the Lord Jesus could have been any more vivid or clear in stressing the absolute necessity of actually doing what he said. But still, like I said earlier, there is a progression in these warnings. So first, we have the two ways or the two gates parable in verses 13 to 14. The main idea is uh, an acknowledgement that what Jesus has just said is going to be hard. So hard that there will be few who actually do it. Now, there's been some debate as to whether we have a gate that leads to a path uh, that then leads to life or destruction, or if there's a path first and then the gate leading to life or destruction. But I don't think the images are meant to be combined like that. The Lord Jesus is repeating the same idea using similar pictures. The way to life is hard, which comes from a Greek word that means something like pressed upon, or we could say squeezed. It's used in context of things being small, but also in context of persecution. So this stresses the amount of people we can expect to be passing through it, similar to the gate being narrow. Notice that this is different than the King James straight, which meant something different back then. There's not a lot of room for people, uh, not because it isn't God's desire for many people to be saved. Remember from our last episode, he, his desire is to give good things. Uh, instead, as Luke puts it, many will try to enter and will not be able because the way is pressed upon or, or squeezed. There's persecution on this road. You will be hard pressed as you travel it. It is not easy or comfortable in contrast to the Broadway, which leads to destruction. In other words, Jesus has ended his ethical instruction talking about how his followers need to not even lust, not even be angry in their hearts. They need to forgive completely. They need to love their enemies and so on. And he knows that not many people are going to do this. And those who do are on the road to life. And those who do not are on the road that leads to the destruction. Now, the harshness of this language, as well as theological concerns, has led some to question what Jesus means by life or destruction. Uh, some people have wondered if this might refer to someone who actually is saved, but not maybe experiencing all that God has for them. Uh, these terms, life and destruction, need to be understood in their contexts, as there are several possible different meanings to these words, and they are used in a variety of ways. But here in Matthew 7, uh, the terms can hardly mean anything other than being allowed into the kingdom which Jesus has come to establish. Notice the language of verse 21 and how it parallels verse 14. Verse 14 talks about entering into life. Verse 21 talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. Verse 13 talks about entering into destruction. And verse 23 talks about people departing from Christ. That is, uh, Allah, verse 21, not entering the kingdom. Opening the scope a little bit more, uh, this use of destruction and not entering the kingdom has been anticipated in texts like 529, which reads, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And the word there is Gehenna, a word used in the first century uh, roughly synonymously with Hades or hell. 
We could also compare this with the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25. Some will enter eternal fire, eternal punishment, and some will go into eternal life. That is, they will inherit the kingdom. So the idea that the people who are on the broad road are somehow nonetheless saved would certainly be news to Matthew. That's not the kind of picture that he's painting. So the idea in verses 13 to 14 is that these instructions are difficult, and so not many people will be saved. Verses 15 to 20 start off with the admonition, beware of false prophets, and the importance of detecting the real nature of those who lead and teach us. Again, it's important to see the thought flow. The way to life is hard. The way to destruction is easy. There are a lot of people on the broad path to destruction. So make sure that you are careful when you choose uh, whom you listen to for spiritual instruction. There will be no shortage of people who are trying to dilute the teachings of Jesus. These are people who are leading the path to destruction. In other words, one of the reasons there are so many people on that path is that there are going to be voices uh, tricking them, luring them to be on it. Now, they self-identify as uh, quote-unquote Christians. They look the part, but they are only making things worse. We are to judge them by their fruit. The idea is that they might look okay from a distance or superficially, but they fail upon closer inspection. D.A. Carson puts it like this, quote, From a distance, the little blackberries on the buckthorn could be mistaken for grapes, and the flowers on certain thistles might deceive one into thinking figs were growing. But no one would be long deceived. So with people, one's fruit is not just what one does, but also what one says and does will ultimately reveal what one is, end quote. I like how this quote identifies the fruit with both the false prophet's actions and words. The idea of bad fruit, of course, calls to mind John the Baptist in chapter 3, where fruit is clearly what a person does. But Jesus will again use the same imagery in chapter 12 regarding the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he'll conclude in verse 34 of chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, this fits well here, where the people in consideration are specifically false prophets. They look Christian, but they've watered down the message of Jesus, and as such, they are ravenous wolves. The next section, verses 21 to 23, similarly have prophets in view. But there is an important switch. Verses 15 to 20 consider people who are like wolves and their intent is to destroy and, and deceive God's people. But in the, the unit following, we don't have a pretend story or parable, but a prediction of what will actually happen. And here the people are tragically, genuinely surprised. They think they will get into the kingdom and that they are on Jesus' side. But to their shock, they're not. The reason is that they are evildoers. This rebuke stings. Jesus is drawing language from Psalm 6-8, which reads, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. They are then described in verse 10 of Psalm 6, All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. The result is that Jesus is depicting these followers, but who don't actually do what he says, like the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as not just, well, close but no cigar. On the contrary, they think they are on Jesus' side, Lord, Lord, but in reality, they are his enemies. So the thought flow is that Jesus acknowledges his teachings are hard and concludes that this means few will make it into life. The difficulty of the situation is only exacerbated 
by the presence of false teachers who either try to trick God's people or are themselves deceived. With this tragic situation in view, Jesus then concludes in verse 24 to 27 with a powerful parable stressing the necessity of doing what Jesus says. This parable has been turned into a kid's song. Maybe you're familiar with it. The rains came down and the floods came up. I'm not opposed to that in theory, but it's kind of like when people make a cute version of Noah's Ark. Really, this is a dark, grim reality. Uh, there, are, there are people who will get swept away, not being safe from the judgment to come. Uh, these are the people who, in verse 26, hear these words of mine and does not do them. The thrust of this text could not be clearer. It is as if Jesus is shouting, so do these words of mine to be safe from the judgment. Now, again, some have been motivated by theological concerns and have tried to argue that doing these things or entering the narrow gate should be interpreted as, well, not as doing good works, because that might be considered legalism, instead believing in Jesus. This approach is typically supported by interrupting the exposition of Matthew 7 to import verses like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you should believe in him. Now, red flag on the play here. This is breaking the rules of exegesis. Matthew's gospel has done nothing to set us up for such a reading. Instead, hearing these words of mine and not doing them, at the very least, must have the Sermon on the Mount in view with its high ethical standards. Again, notice the thought flow here. There are many on the path to destruction because the way is narrow. This follows after Jesus' difficult instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, watch out for those who attempt to deceive you into not actually doing this. Well, we might wonder, how do these verses fit in with passages like Ephesians 2, 8 or 9, or verses which uh, talk about salvation being by faith alone? Now, that's a topic that's too big for us to fully handle at the moment. Instead, at this point, I want to point out that it's important to see this powerful ending of the Sermon on the Mount as a piece of the theological puzzle. Now, it's not the whole thing. It's not the final word on the subject in the New Testament, nor is it even the final word in the Gospel of Matthew. Praise God, the gospel doesn't end here. It culminates in the giving of the Lord Jesus as the basis of the new covenant to forgive us of our sins. You don't get that necessary peace just from the Sermon on the Mount. But though this is not the whole of the message and just a part, it is a true part. Now, disciples, of course, come in all shapes and sizes, and the New Testament, Matthew as well, acknowledges that God's people often fall woefully short. And this doesn't mean we conclude that such a person necessarily isn't saved. But there is a kind of encounter with Jesus that some people can have, which does not involve the kind of uh, repentant, from the heart kind of righteousness that Jesus says is necessary. Those who fail to uh, challenge people to actually do what Jesus says are like wolves in sheep's clothing. And even if their heart is genuinely convinced they are doing something to advocate Jesus' message in the world, they are genuinely deceived. So if listening to this statement by Jesus, you realize that you are the one who's been building your house on sand, you've been hearing but not doing, uh, praise God, there's still time to hear Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.